today. And my name is Paul Buckley. I am the lead pastor here. I have the privilege of bringing God's Word on most Sundays, though I'm also grateful to have other men um, gifted, called, and ordained, in the case of Jeff, to bring God's Word as well. And uh, if, uh, if you wanted to bring your children, I think, I don't know if Mike mentioned it, but you can bring them now to, uh, you didn't bring them earlier to children's ministry, it's just upstairs, the younger kids are downstairs. But we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 8, and uh, in this wonderful series, uh, entitled Amazed, we are learning about Jesus. Mark uh, presents Christ and presents Christ in a way that is meant to amaze us, uh, to change us, and to really compel us to follow him. Really, uh, the Gospel of Mark is about being amazed by Jesus and following him. That's really uh, what Mark is doing uh, in this wonderful account of Christ's life and death and resurrection. And so we're continuing on as we go through. And uh, Mike, Lily, the other week, talked about... uh, what had gone on, some healings that Jesus had been in uh, the territory of the Decapolis. Uh, This was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a predominantly Gentile area. So you had the Jews and the Gentiles at the time. The Jews were the covenant people of God. They were called into relationship with God based on his gracious delivery of them from uh, Egypt and really on God's gracious call to Abraham uh, to be his people to believe in him and to respond in faith to a life of obedience. Uh, And so you had the Jews and then you had Gentiles were those who were outside of that covenant and and following all sorts of foreign gods. Well, Jesus is spending a lot of time in this area where it's predominantly Gentiles. And this is not without purpose. This is because God's heart, his compassion for the lost, for not only the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. It's really amazing actually. It doesn't amaze us as much perhaps because most of us are from Gentile backgrounds and, and you know and we think well I mean God obviously worked in my life. I'm here. I'm believing. Um, but in the day the way that the people of God, the Jewish people in particular would have uh, understood things is, is that God had a plan for them and he was going to fulfill this plan for them and the, the rest of the world basically had run away from God. And so they were getting their just desserts, really, by being left to, to kind of go their own way and, and to suffer all the consequences that come with that. And to see in Mark, actually, Jesus pursuing Gentiles was, was shocking. It would have been shocking for them. And for Mark to spend a number of chapters and a good section here in Scripture talking about Jesus' ministry among the Gentiles is really a, a blatant point that he's making. That Jesus came not only to save the Jews, but to save the Gentiles. He not only came to rescue and touch those who are near to the kingdom of God, but those who are far away as well. And it's wonderful, wonderful good news for us. And so, before we read, I just want to give you a little background there to understand that. And, And really, we see a picture here of the pursuit of God after people. The pursuit of God after Gentiles. The pursuit of God after people that aren't interested really, in him, and yet he pursues them. He shows himself to them 
and he shows himself to the Gentiles. He pursues them. He shows himself to the Jews as well. And you're going to see in this chapter, in this section, verses 1 to 21, a real contrast between God and his gracious compassion displaying who he is to people and people just not getting it. They miss it. They're dull. Uh, They deny him. There's determined denial by the Pharisees. There's these dull disciples. Jesus is shining the glory of God, and yet people around him are not getting it. And that's really the, the case. Really the case for his disciples, the case for his disciples today as well. We often miss the obvious. And, and so uh, you could back up to the title page. Um, the title of this is, Duh, Missing the Obvious. And that's what we're going to talk about. Actually, uh, I heard, a, I read about an interesting story the other day. Uh, the Hotel Ritz, the Ritz in Paris, uh, this really prestigious hotel, um, had uh, just discovered this past summer that it had a priceless painting hanging in one of the rooms. Um, it had been there for quite a while in this room. Uh, the, the painting had been there for over 50 years in this particular room had been uh, the, the residence of Coco Chanel, the famous designer, uh, and, and it had been hanging like over a desk. And no one ever noticed that it actually was a masterpiece by Charles Lebrun, who, uh, anyone who know who Charles Lebrun is? He was, he was the painter, the court painter for Louis XIV. And his works hang in like the Louvre and Versailles and places like that. So that's the caliber. And it was sitting right there over this desk for over 50 years, and no one noticed until they were doing some renovations, and they recognized, this is a LeBron. It had his initials and everything. It's worth $650,000, and it's just hanging in one of their rooms. And obviously, they've taken much care now. But no one had kind of seen the obvious. People had just walked by for years. Or, or I mean, even Coco Chanel, who probably, if you know, she probably should have known better and apparently didn't know, sat there at her desk looking up at a... At a masterpiece on display yet missing it. And this section of scripture really is about God's masterpiece being on display through Christ and people missing it. And implied in this really is a call. And that's what the next slide showed. Really the call here. That that in this storyline, Mark is putting this story together. He's weaving the story. He's presenting uh, things here so we would hear God's call it. And that is this, that God has graciously and powerfully displayed himself in Jesus. Graciously and powerfully displayed himself in Jesus to call us from denial and distraction to behold, believe, and belong to Christ. That's what this section of Scripture is about. So let's pray, and then let's read chapter 8, 1 through 21, and ask that God would teach us from his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the display of Jesus Christ, this masterpiece, your glory on display. And we thank you that in this section of Scripture, you are teaching us really about the essence of of discipleship and Christianity. And you're doing it through this this story. And I ask you, Lord, to, to teach us, to change us, that we would encounter you as we see you in your word. Lord, would you help me to serve you? Would you help me to, to, in a sense, just hang the painting up for others to see and to marvel at and to be changed? Lord, thank you 
your glory. Thank you for your commitment to us to display your glory, to change our lives. So work through this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, please look at Mark 8, starting in verse 1. You can follow on the overhead as well. Jesus is in this area on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, a largely Gentile area. And it says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves... And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another, the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not Remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? God's word from Mark 8. 1 through 21. This passage is given to us really uh, to, to call us. To call us to remember. To call us to see. To call us to behold. To call us to believe. 
And this passage is grouped together. This feeding of the 4,000 is grouped with these interactions with the Pharisees and these interactions with the disciples. How do we know that? Well, because the interaction with the disciples is explicitly about the feeding of the 4,000 and earlier the 5,000. And, and that, those are kind of the bookends. We have the actual feeding of the 4,000. We have the discussion. And then in between, we have this interaction with the Pharisees. That's put in between there, not just because chronologically it was in between. Um, and, and this is a side point that's important to recognize in Scripture. Uh, if, the, if the apostles had basically written down everything that Jesus did, it would, would be just a huge book. God ordained what they would write down. And there was purpose in writing things down. They chose what to say and how to say it to make points. And so my job as someone bringing the Word of God, preaching the Word, is to discover what those points are and to bring that point to you. And so in this passage, there's an implied point here that Mark's getting at. He's using both the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 and these interactions to really paint a contrast. We have God displaying Himself through this miracle in a profound way, and then we have the Pharisees not getting it, and they don't get it, and they don't want to get it. There's determined denial. And then we have the disciples not getting it, and they're just plain old dull. And it's meant implicitly, really, to call us to remember, to call us not to do what the Pharisees did, and not to do what the disciples did, to get the miracle, to remember, and not forget, and live that way. And that's really the, the point here. That's what I believe the point of Mark 8, 1 through 21 is. This is this, that God has graciously and powerfully displayed himself in Jesus to call us from denial and distraction, or dullness that comes with distraction, to behold, to believe and belong to him, to follow after him, in line with the, the theme of Mark, to be amazed and to follow. That's what he's getting at here. And so I want to take time to talk about these aspects. I want to talk about the divine display. Mark 8, 1 to 10. I want to talk about the, the determined denial verse, I think, is it 11 and 12, and then, and then 12, 11 through 13, and then 14 following. I want to talk about the dullness of the disciples. So, let's do that. Let's talk about the miracle first. These first verses, verses 1 through 10. And you might want to have uh, your Bible handy so you can kind of refer back to it. This is a re repeat miracle. This is the second time of doing a, a similar miracle, but it is a distinct time. It's not, you know, Mark isn't taking poetic liberty here to kind of re reproduce what happened earlier and change the facts a little bit just to make a point. Um, that would be the point of beyond liberty to lying. Uh, it, it actually is a second miracle. And how do we know that? Well, it's, there are two times it's put, but the, there are facts that are different, right? Uh, it's in a different location. The earlier miracle was done probably on the northeast or uh, north, east northeast side of the lake in an area that was largely Jewish people. And, and the reaction to that feeding actually is they wanted to make him king. So they understood as good Jews that this is the promised one. We're going to make him king. There's a different reaction there. There's 5,000 and it's 5,000 men. So there's probably like 15,000 people total. And there's a different amount of, different amount of initial loaves of bread. Anyone, any of the, any of the kids can tell me the different amounts of loaves in this account, 4,000 versus the 5,000. Anyone want to guess? 
There are seven this time. Earlier there were how many loaves? Not that this is anything too significant, but just... Any guess? All right. Any adult guesses? Five. Right, that's right. So it's, so it's five the first time, it's seven the second time, right? I think that's right. And, uh, and then the basketfuls that get picked up. Earlier there's 12 in the first feeding, and now there are seven baskets full of leftovers. So there are, there are different facts here, and the location is important too. So the first one was in largely Jewish area. Now this one is on somewhere on the eastern shore of the lake, largely Gentiles. Um, and, and so it's a different case, but it's, it's very similar. It's very similar, and it teaches us similar truths. There's lots of truths actually packed in just this miracle. Really, it is God displaying who He is through this miracle. It says here that Jesus had compassion on them because they had been with Him for three days and had nothing to eat. It, it gives us a, a picture that, that of God's great compassion. Uh, God's care for the unlikely because they're in Gentiles in Gentile territory. Thank God that He reaches out to the unlikely that he wants to touch not, not only those that are close to the kingdom of God, not only those that maybe have grown up around the gospel and been exposed to things, and, and maybe you're in a place where, where they're ready to hear, but he also wants to draw the unlikely, those that are far, those that don't know much. He, he comes to them. He pursues them as well. He puts himself on display for them too. So if there's anyone here, if you see yourself as an outsider, as far from the kingdom, be encouraged. Because Jesus goes after those who are far away to draw them to himself. That they might turn from self and sin and find Christ. That's part of what's going on, a big part of the theme here. And the theme throughout Mark and really the entirety of Scripture. God pursues the unlikely. God pursues those who aren't pursuing him. And really that goes for everybody, whether you're near or far from the kingdom. Wonderful truth. So he is going to display himself here in Gentile territory to a people who are really not interested in him. But another point here is just the amazing compassion of Christ. That God is compassionate. Jesus cares about these people. He cares about their hunger. He cares, he cares about their needs. He wants them to be fed. And and think about it. I mean, just think about that truth. He, he cares about their physical need. He could have just said, look, you know, hey, spiritual things are more important, you know? You just, you need to believe, and, you know, actually three days going hungry and a little fainting might do you some good to get you thinking a little harder about things. He could have said that. Tough. But, but he cares for them. He cares about their needs. He cares about their hunger. He cares about the details of life. This is who God is. And this is put on display for us, that we might understand what he's like. He cares about physical needs. There is an error, I think, in Western thought, where we tend to pit spiritual against physical. We tend to think, well, it's all about the spiritual. And the spiritual needs and spiritual truths, yes, are the most important truths, but they are not to be abstracted from physical things. God made us body and soul. He made creation physical. God cares about the physical. And, and we make the mistake in Western thought, I think it's influenced by Greek Platonic thought, which basically Platonic thought said that, you know, the, the, the physical is just, it's trash. 
it's broken, it's really no good, it's corrupt. And, you know, it's just always by the very nature of being physical going to be substandard to what's really valuable. The spiritual is valuable. And that's kind of where the notion of, of heaven comes from. The, the modern conception of heaven is, is sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, and spiritual, you know, your spiritual bodies and so forth. The, the final state is not that way. The final state is where heaven and earth are brought together. Where the physical is redeemed right along with the spiritual. That's how God thinks. That's how Jesus thinks. He cares about feeding stomachs as well as reaching souls. And so this is a picture of the character of God. That's really important to understand. That's really important to get. Because I think if we don't get it, if we live in the world of platonic thought, then we're going to fall short of portraying to people what God's like. If we seek to touch people's lives and we, we are just seeking to meet spiritual needs, we're just going to tell them about Jesus and forgiveness of sins, which is the most important thing we can tell them, and then have nothing else to do with them, we are misrepresenting God. Because God's redemption is, yes, most primarily, most importantly, about redemption of souls, but He's about redemption of whole people and society and culture. The kingdom of God is advancing here. Yes, it won't be fulfilled till He returns, but it's advancing. It's touching lives. It's touching culture. It's touching families. God cares about employment. God cares about food. God cares about art. God cares about literature. He cares about all these things. And don't dare think otherwise. And this story helps us know that and remember it. He cared about feeding people's stomachs. He cared greatly about it. He cares for us. He cares for you. He cares for all your needs. Cast your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. That's good news, isn't it? That He cares for us. That He cares about us to that degree. He cared about this crowd. He didn't want them to go home hungry. He didn't want them to possibly faint, to pass out, to to grow weary along the way. And so He wanted to feed them. And that leads to the second quality that is on display here. His compassion first, and then secondly, His power. He displays His power. He cares about them, and so He wants to do something. He wants to feed them. And so what does He do? He feeds them. And nothing can get in the way of Him accomplishing what He wants to do. He's God. And and He does whatever He wants to do. Nothing hinders God. God is the only being who does everything He wants to do. Anything He wants to do, He does it. And this is God the Son, God Jesus Christ, displaying the character of God, displaying that He will do everything He wants to do. And so He takes seven loaves, gives thanks, breaks these loaves, and hands them out to His disciples, and they give them to the crowd of 4,000 or more. And then he takes a few small fish, a small fish they would have got from the Sea of Galilee, gives thanks and distributes those. And this crowd of 4,000 or more have their needs met. They are all satisfied. It says that they ate and were satisfied. They had more than they could eat, actually, because they, when they were done, there were leftovers, Right? And that's a sure sign that people have had more than they can eat. 
when they're so stuffed that they can't eat anymore. You know, somebody is really full when they say, thank you, I'm just totally stuffed. So that's the picture here. They got to eat a lot of bread and fish. And and we may think, well, bread and fish, that's boring. Well, that's actually a good meal for this culture at the time, to have a meal with, with bread, all the bread and all the fish you want. Um, is, I mean, it's, it's close to a Thanksgiving meal. It's a whole, it's a good solid, at least a meat and potatoes type meal for them. So they all have had a hearty meal. They're all satisfied fully. And, and there are leftovers. There's seven basketfuls. We don't know how big the baskets are, but they're not little tiny baskets like this, likely some big baskets to carry big things in. Seven baskets full. So there's leftovers. So Jesus is not only compassionate but he's powerful. He can do what he wants. He has the power to feed them. And so he does. That's important. And this story isn't here for us just because it's a story. This story is here for us because he wants you to understand this. He wants me to understand who he is. What he's like. He's compassionate. He cares about you. He cares deeply about you. He thinks about you. He thinks about your situation. He numbers the hairs on your head. He knows all your thoughts before they come to be. He knows everything about you. He cares for you deeply. And I would say even more than you care for yourself, which is amazing because we care about ourselves a whole lot. He cares even more deeply for you, and he knows what's very best for you. He has a heart of compassion, and he has a heart of compassion not only for those who are his, but those who are not his. You see Jesus interact with people in Scripture and, and he, his heart goes out to people. And he, he is sad over their rejection of him. This is the character of God. He's compassionate. He desires that none would perish. That's on his heart. He's sovereign. He's wise. And there are mysteries we don't understand. But we must not ever think that he is not a God of deep, deep compassion for all and particularly for his people. Full of compassion. And he's full of power. He does all that he wants to do. That's good news. He cares for you, and he has power to do something about it. Some years ago, I was in court with uh, one of our congregants. And and there was a a hearing going on. um, And and I was there as a pastor to care for this person going through some difficulties related to, to this court appearance. They, they weren't the guilty party, um, but they needed just pastoral care. And they didn't have a lawyer. And uh, it, didn't, you know, it just wasn't going to be likely that they could pay for a lawyer and, and, and so forth. It was a preliminary hearing. Well, it was really cool to find out that the court actually provided an, what they called an advocate. And they said, well, we'll provide an advocate for, you know, for your, this person. I was like, oh, excellent. That's great. I mean, we need an advocate, right? An advocate is someone who advocates, someone who represents your, your interests and cares for you and, and stands for your rights. And so I pictured like this advocate would basically be a lawyer, right, that would come in and advocate for her case and stand there before the judge and say, your honor, my client, and do all that. And, and so I was psyched, like, great. I'm, I'm going to do my pastor thing. I don't have to try to be an advocate, a legal advocate. I'll just be a pastor here and a friend. And this advocate will help. And so the, the hearing came, and the advocate came up, and my friend stood before the, the judge, actually. It was a, and then the opponent was there with, with the lawyer, the opponent's lawyer. And she's there with the advocate. And I figured the advocate's going to make the case. The advocate did not say a single word. 
All she did was stand there and kind of, I think, hold her hand and cared for her. The advocate was actually full of compassion. Seemed like a very compassionate person. But she didn't do anything. And actually, she wasn't supposed to do it. I didn't know that. I figured, this is an advocate. But it was a care bear. It was a teddy bear for her to hold. That's all this woman did. She was just about useless. But she had lots of compassion. And maybe it made my friend feel a little better to know this advocate next to me here cares about me, but had no power to do anything. God cares about you and has power to do whatever he wants. And he will do whatever is needed for your good. That's what this story is about. That's, that's what it's pointing to. And it's pointing to really through this story, both through the use of bread broken and given and, 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 and to the final conclusion of the story in Mark, that that compassion and power come together in the most profound way on the cross. You see, in God's great compassion, He saw you in your sin, the state of sin. And it's not a word that is used in our culture a whole lot. To our harm. Because whether we like to talk about it or not, there's this reality that there's sin. Sin is simply this. It's lawlessness. It's, it's turning away from God's good ways. It's, ultimately behind it is a rejection of God Himself. It's saying, I want it my way, on my terms. I want to be in charge of my life. I want to be the captain of my own destiny. I want to do it my way. And there are all, all different ways that sin manifests. Sometimes for some people, it's blatant. They just go out and they're, they're crazy. It's explicit, you know, crazy lifestyles. And everyone knows it. Wow, it's just obvious this person is destroying themselves and others. And, but sometimes sin can be subtle. That's actually the more dangerous type in some ways. It can be subtle. It can be a really religious, good, moral person who goes to church all the time, does what they're supposed to do, maybe you know, grew up and went to church, and yet is not standing on God's provision, but their own. Standing on their own efforts and, and saying, well, you know, I, I'm the one who's going to make it able, make it possible for me to be acceptable to others and to God. And that's, that's just as bad, if not worse, than the blatant sort of sin, because it's still saying, God, I, I want to relate to you and to others on my terms, not yours. And it's saying that I somehow have a basis in myself to to stand before God. And the Bible says, no, you don't. You're a created being, created by God. You need God. And you are sinful. You are rebellious. And, and even though it may not look that bad deep inside, the darkness of your heart is just as dark as any heart. And you're refusing to come to the only provision God has made, Christ. So no matter where you might be on that spectrum, the reality is, is there's sin out there and the wages of sin is death. God is holy. He's good. And He defines a standard of justice and goodness, not us. And in that perfect standard, He has said, sin, to rebel against me, is to be, to be exiled from me, to be sent away, to live apart from me. That's what death is. And, and if a, a person continues in that state, when their physical body is gone, then they will experience eternal spiritual death. That's what hell is. Ultimately, it's, it's separation from God, the worst thing that could happen. But, 
God is rich in love and compassion. God so loved the world. So loved the world. So loved the world. So loved us that He sent His only Son in His amazing compassion. He wanted to rescue us from this state, this awful state. The penalty of sin and the pollution of sin in our lives, the presence of sin, this heinous enemy of our souls. He wanted to rescue from us. He had compassion on us in our sinful state. He loved us while we were yet sinners. And so in His gracious compassion, He became a man. God the Son became a man. Fully God. Fully man. Lived a righteous life. Did everything that mankind was supposed to do in faith and obedience to His Father and love for others. Fulfilled the Scriptures and offered up that life on the cross to die for your sins. To die for your sins. To die for your sins that you committed this week. The specific ways that you have failed to love God and love others. And, and even just in the week, if I fully knew my list, it would, it would just probably be overwhelming. He died for those sins. To pay the just penalty so there could be forgiveness for you. So you could be free and forgiven and and to be accepted and to know Him and walk with Him as a son or daughter. That displays His compassion. His amazing compassion. His power is displayed in the cross as well. First off, in His death for sin, He took on Himself the just penalty from the Father for sin. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is eternal death. The wages of sin is is of really infinite dimensions. And He took not just one sin, but countless sins. And the sins of countless people on Himself. And then God in His holy justice poured out punishment on the Son. And there's nobody who could ever pay that but God Himself. So in His infinite power, only He could bear that penalty and pay for it in full. And He did fully pay for your sins. He died. He was buried. Dead. Physically. Dead. In His crucifixion for sin. And then God displayed His power in raising Him from the dead on the third day. Great power in raising Christ and vindicating Christ. The debt is fully paid and He is risen in victory. Risen conquering sin and death. Risen for your life and your victory and your forgiveness to guarantee your forgiveness and your future. The the cross, His death and resurrection, the Gospel is the ultimate display of His compassion and His power. And that's what this story is about. That's what the story tells us. It shows us His compassion and power, both operating together, so that we would come and put our faith in Him. That you today would be reminded of who He is. That you today would put your faith, you'd behold and believe in Him and trust your life to Him. And find your life in Him. I've lost track of time. (laughs) 
just enjoying talking about our Savior. When, uh, when the kids were little, um, we would take them to the beach. We still take them to the beach, not just when they're little, but now. But anyhow, we used to take them to the beach when they were little, and we just loved going there. And there's something that I would do uh, just to help them get to enjoy the beach uh, when they were, you know, two, three years old, maybe four or five even. Uh, they weren't really good swimmers yet. I would take them in my arms, and I would walk into the water with them. And, and it was just a way to get used to the water and, and to enjoy it. And then I would, uh, do, I would just basically have them, and then I would dip down into the water so they would get wet, maybe up to the neck or so, and I'd come back up just to expose them to the water. And as they, as they uh, got to like it more and more, then I would kind of notch it up a little bit. And, um, and you guys probably remember uh, the kids. I would, uh, what I would do is we would go down at the ocean, and the waves would be coming in. Right? And this is like when there were medium waves, not huge waves, just so you know, I, I wasn't an abusive father. Uh, medium waves coming in, and I would take them and I would dip down in the, the trough of the wave, all right? dip down underwater with them. And the wave would be coming in like it was going to crash over us, right? And right before it did, I would stand up and turn my back to it. And it would just hit me in the back and they would be fine. Uh, they, they would be fine. Uh, and they loved it. I hope, right, guys? Did you love, love that? Yeah, they would love it. I mean, they would scream, scream with delight. They just enjoyed it, um, you know, being there in the waves. Now, why? Because this is a situation that otherwise would have terrified them, right? Sorry. It would have terrified them. To go in the water and to have a wave almost crash on them, they would, it would have terrified them. But they weren't terrified. They had a blast. What was the difference? They were in my arms. And they knew two things. I don't know if they, they shouldn't have probably wouldn't have been able to articulate these two things, but they knew I loved them, I had compassion for them, and they knew I was powerful enough to save them, to protect them. So in my arms, what would have been a terrifying situation became a delight, it became fun, became entertainment. Knowing those two facts changed their little world there at the beach. Well, that's how it is with the Lord. When we know that He has compassion on us, that He loves us, that He cares for us deeply, and that He has power to do whatever He wants, therefore He will take care of us, the waves of life may come crashing in, but they're no longer there to terrify us. But there's comfort, and sometimes even delight as we wonder, what is God going to do through this circumstance? Here comes another wave. This is crazy, but let's wait and see what my Father does who loves me, and who is able to do all that he's pleased to do. That's what this story is about. That's why that this is here. Now, quickly, <laughs> the contrast. Talking about the Pharisees and the disciples. They're there as contrast. So Jesus gets in the boat after the feeding. He goes over to Dalmanutha, which is actually, they, just, they for years didn't know where it was, just recently discovered it archaeologically. It's, on, it's uh, up near the top of the Sea of Galilee. He goes up there, and there are Pharisees there. And the Pharisees ask him for a sign. They came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign. Now, this seeking after the sign was not because they were interested in following him. What does it say? They were seeking after a sign to test him. They basically came, and they argued with him. They were determined in their denial. 
And they just wanted another reason. They wanted to test him so they could have grounds to say, see, you're not doing it the way we think you should. You're not doing it God's way, at least in their mind and so forth, which they had done again before. It's interesting that Dalmanutha area is likely very near where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. And so they might have been there, or at least they would have heard about it. They had plenty of signs. They had plenty of reasons to believe in Jesus, and yet they come, they want a sign. They're determined in their denial. And so Jesus says, this generation, basically this, this group of people who are there and rejecting me will not receive a sign. I'm not going to do this. You guys don't want to believe in me. You're determined in your denial. And so he, he leaves that area. And it's sad. It's a reality. And it's there for us to, to consider. And maybe we are somebody who's in determined denial. Maybe you are there. Maybe you are thinking, you know, this, I, I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. And this story identifies you. And it calls you actually to not do that. It shows us how ridiculous it is. These guys had, had seen this miracle. We just read about this miracle, this amazing miracle. This is God in the flesh doing things, showing himself that we might believe. So don't deny, but believe. Second aspect of that is I, I just want to make us realize that a lot of people are, are in that state of determined denial. That's the natural state, actually. All have sinned. There's no one righteous. There's no one who seeks after God. No, not one. They have all turned away. That, that we have corrupted the truth, that humanity corrupts the truth in the name of unrighteousness. That the problem with our, us is a heart problem, not a head problem. Our hearts are turned away from God, and so we will look for reasons to justify our doubt and our disbelief. That's the reality. And there are those who are really good. Actually, we're all really good. We're all amazing at coming up with excuses, reasons not to follow, reasons not to believe. And so what do we do as a believer with that? We need to recognize that truth. This is the state of many of those around us, people we love. They are in different degrees of determined denial. And, and what do we do? Well, I think we, we love them. We remember that Jesus rescues people in this state, that he works in their lives, and they need a heart change before a head change, before a change of mind. Sometimes we'll try to argue people into it, right? They come up with their excuses and we answer. They just come up with another one. We answer that one. Come up with another one and we answer. And you may answer all of them. They're going to come up with more. They're not going to stop. And so the wise approach, I think, is to love them, to listen to them. Let them see your life. Let them see the radical nature of the good news of Christ, that it creates in us a genuine love for God and a genuine love for people. We're imperfect, but there's something there that's, that's gold. There's salt and light that, that influences. Let them see that and listen to them. Ask them questions. Help them to see that, you know what, at the bottom of all their philosophies is, is nothing. Just learn to listen and ask questions. Oh, well, if you believe that, what do you do about that? And it's, it's actually not that hard to do that. Just learn to ask a lot of questions and help them see that doesn't make sense. That's what we do in Alpha. One of the things about Alpha is a chance for people to talk. And as they talk more about what they believe, they see more and more that, well, wait a second, maybe that doesn't make much sense. I thought that worked. And then to be in a place where they're maybe more receptive. And then at that point, as you love them and listen and ask, just uh, speak the truth. Tell them about Jesus. 
There are a lot of determined deniers who are now earnest believers. Finally, the dull disciples. He gets in the boat from there after the Pharisees, and, uh, and it's kind of a comical scene. Um, they forgot to bring bread. They forgot about bread. They only have one loaf. And, and they're fixated on that in the boat. I don't, you know, I, I don't, you can imagine what was going, what was going on in the conversation. Like, oh, you know, Thaddeus, you were supposed to remember to bring one of those extra baskets. What did you do? It wasn't my fault. He didn't remind. We, you know, we don't know what was going on, but they were kind of fixated on the fact that they had no bread. And in that context, Jesus has just been with the Pharisees. He's concerned for his disciples. He's concerned for his, the church really as well. And so he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And these guys are still fixated on not bringing the bread. They're kind of like me when I forget my cell phone. Um, I've grown so used to my cell phone, I forget my cell phone. I kind of, life is all about finding my cell phone. Has that ever happened to you? You get the Linus without his blanket thing. And and that's what they're doing with with the bread. They're fixated. So Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the uh, Herodians. Leaven is yeast. It's something that you put in bread. It works its way through. It's small, yet very influential. It makes the bread puff up. So watch out for these guys, is what Jesus is saying. Watch out for their mindset. Don't let even a little bit of that in. Watch out for the leaven of these guys, this unbelief. That's what he means. And they're thinking, Jesus is talking about like what sort of bread they should buy. You know, like, like he's saying, don't buy any of that Pharisee Herodian bread. You know, you only want to get the good stuff. Because I had, I had some of that Pharisee bread. The leaven made me sick. I was sick for days after that. Don't eat that stuff. That's what they're thinking he's saying. And so they go back. So, oh, yeah, yeah, the leaven. Yeah, maybe that's it. We need better leaven. Whatever goes on. And, and they're missing the picture. They're nervous and they're upset that they don't have enough bread to eat. And yet, just recently, Jesus fed 4,000 people out of seven loaves. And so Jesus is, 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 rebukes them, basically. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened having eyes? Do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Guys, are you so dull? I just did this miracle. And I did another one. And you're not understanding. You're not seeing. And, and, and he presses this on them. And we can look at this and think, what a bunch of dopes. Come on, guys. Look at what just happened. And you know what? I think we're the dopes. At least I'm the dope. Because I do the same thing. I forget. I forget. And this story is here to call us to remember as disciples. These guys are dull. They're missing it. They're not understanding who he is. And and so Jesus recounts to them what he had done. He asked them questions. Guys, what do you remember about these things? How many many loaves did I start with? In the 5,000. And how many baskets were left over? And they give the answer. How many this time? And how many baskets? Seven. Why did he say that? Because he wants them to remember. That's how it finishes, right? Do you not remember? Do you not, uh, do you not yet understand? They don't remember. He's pointing to the fact that they're not remembering what had happened. And that's really the core of the address here to disciples, to you and to me. 
to recount what went on and to understand from that. Verse 18, and do you not remember? The band could come up as we close. The call here, and really the, the core of Christianity, is remembering. What it means to be a disciple is for you to remember. It's for you to remember what Jesus has done. To look back that you might look forward. To how do you avoid being a dull disciple? You remember. You look back at what he's done. For them, it meant looking back at the feeding of the 4,000 and feeding of the 5,000 and not looking at circumstances. They were caught up in their circumstances. We only have one piece loaf of bread and we've got all this journey ahead of us. What's going to happen? Their eyes were down on their circumstances and Jesus is saying, look back at what I've done. Look back at me. Behold me and my compassion and power and my provision. And this is really a key to the Christian life. Get your eyes off of where you are right now and get them on what Christ has done. His death and His resurrection. And then the countless things that He's done throughout your life to care for you. He remains faithful. He will always be faithful. Get your eyes off of your present circumstances away from the wave that seems to be crashing in and put them on Christ. And now as you move forward, you do so remembering what He has done and who He is. So, what are the things in your life that are distracting you? What are the things in your life that are keeping you fixated, maybe anxious, maybe depressed? I, I can share stories from my own life of anxiety and degree of depression and despair even. Because I focused on the one loaf or what I didn't have rather than what God has done and what Christ has done and what I have in Him. And that's what took me out of that season of life was just to keep on going back, keep on remembering, remembering Christ crucified and risen, remembering His faithfulness. So what are the things in your life that cause you to be a dull disciple? The call isn't to fix, on, fix your eyes on those things. It's to remember. To see the divine display and to believe, behold, belong, to walk with Him, to follow after. Let's pray.